Uh, just yeah, just let me know when uh, it starts. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I am your host, Sammy, lost in the shared universe, Yunnan. Paul Vermeesh returns with a distinct poetry collection, Shared Universe, New and Selected Poems, 1995-2020. to This is more than just a best-of collection, although it is that. You remember how Marvel movies started with Iron Man, then the Hulk followed that, Thor, and then Captain America? Each character and their whole world was properly and firmly established. Like a patient architect, Marvel Studios introduced each remarkable character via solo movie before bringing them all together. Avengers Assemble! And to Paul Vermeer, that's like writing poetry because it follows the same process. A writer issues poems in various books and publications, and it's like an Iron Man standalone movie or a Captain America movie. With Shared Universe, as he explains it, he's now bringing his poems together, all of his poems together, Avengers Assemble, and the result is a fascinating contrast in light of a bold yet fresh context. As you'll hear him say in this conversation, he says, I understand that I work in an art form that has less broad popular appeal than, say, a superhero film. But I can certainly borrow from that genre what I think is interesting and use it as a framework for the work that I am doing. Yes, that's so dope, isn't it? And as you can understand from this introduction, I'm a sci-fi nerd and so is Paul. So that's obviously the ideal place to start a nerd poetry conversation. Paul recently tweeted out he saw Tenet. When the movies were open, I eagerly went to see it. So let's get into that inverted time movie. Because that's sort of what Paul does with Shared Universe. The poems in this best of collection are not chronological. Instead... Many of them are fueled by an optimistic imagination, a space-age hope for the future. Sometimes we got to look back to look ahead. Uh, you recently watched, or you recently tweeted out that you watched Tenant. I wanted to know how you found the movie. I think I need to watch it again. Yeah. Uh, I felt the same way. I'm, 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 I'm not sure, like, uh, that I got the whole experience of it. Um, I, obviously I did not watch it in a, in a movie theater. I mm-hmm. watched it at home. Mm-hmm. And of course at home, there's a myriad distractions. Yeah. You know, my cats are asking for attention and uh, <laughs> you can, you can sort of pause the movie and get up and go to the bathroom if you need to. And you could get a snack and uh, uh you can look at your phone, which is something you can't do mm-hmm. in a movie theater, right? Yeah. So uh, all these things, and this, I mean, I, I know Christopher Nolan has been sort of grousing about the fact that uh, his movie didn't have the opportunity to have like the full theater experience, but I mean, this is the this is the time we live in, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I think a second watch might be. Uh, necessary uh in order for me to sort of piece together uh the whole thing because it's it's really a puzzle and um in order to i think in order to 
put all the puzzle pieces together. You have to really understand how the inverted time mechanism works. And I'm not sure that I got my head around that uh, yeah, watching I, it the first time. Yeah, I found I found the physics for this movie a little bit too complex. Like Inception was kind of straightforward. It was kind of weird, obviously, but the physics kind of made sense. You're like, all right, I get it. And then you they go do their thing. This one with inverted time, I found it a little bit too too much. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really not sure that I understood sort of how how it works or like what the parameters for using that inverted time uh, device were. Uh, and um, uh, so I think I think after one one watch, which and admittedly kind of. Maybe I wasn't giving it my full attention, but uh, uh, I think I'll, if if I'm if if I am to understand uh, everything that happened in the movie or even most of it, I'll need to watch it again. Partly the reason I'm asking you about Tenant was a because I was curious what you thought. B, you're a sci-fi nerd, and also uh, during an interview for your previous poetry book, Self Defense for the Brave and Happy. You said in an interview, I have to wonder if our appetite for cautionary tales rather than aspirational ones is a symptom of widespread societal regression or one of its causes. I'm haunted by the question, if we spend more time imagining a better world, would we eventually achieve one? That was a couple of years ago. So where are you at now like, with that philosophy? I don't think I've changed my mind much on that score. I think... Uh... Clearly, we tend to put our energy and resources and effort into things that we think are achievable. No one in their right mind spends time and effort on things that they think are impossible. And I think if we imagine progress and equality and equity and a better world for everyone, it will begin to seem more achievable. And as a consequence of that seeming, uh, more effort, energy, and resources will be spent in trying to achieve it. You're talking about um, like Kennedy's, uh, we're going to go to the moon because it is hard, not because it is easy type of speech. I, right? I think, I th- I think that's, that's an example of the kind of optimistic futurism that I sort of have a nostalgia for. I think in the 1960s, futurism was very optimistic. I think in the space age, forward-thinking people, people looking towards the future, were imagining a better world for the most part. Star Trek. Um, Star Trek, sure. Uh, Walt Disney's Tomorrowland. Uh, uh, thinkers and architects like Buckminster Fuller, mm-hmm. all of these people, futurists in their own right, Gene Roddenberry, Walt Disney, Buckminster Fuller, uh, John F. Kennedy, all, all futurists of, of one type or another, imagining a better world and putting resources, effort, and imagination into achieving that better world, or at least showing us what it might look like. And, um, and somewhere as the space age uh, dwindled away, when we stopped going to the moon, 
when the space age became uh, rather than a exercise in human achievement and human imagination, a more sort of dollars and cents economic enterprise, uh, our imagining of the future changed. And these hopeful futures that we imagined during the space age became dystopias, became post-apocalyptic, apocalyptic scenarios. We started imagining what the world would be like when civilization collapses or becomes so bloated and decadent and selfish that it can't sustain itself. We start to imagine the world that gives us the sort of hyper-corporate evil society that we see in the alien movies or mm -hmm. in blade in blade runner yeah or um yeah we, uh, we start to see uh we start to imagine the collapse of our civilization instead of the full realization of its potential so that 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 futurism of the space age which was very optimistic that sort of tomorrowland star trek Buckminster Fuller vision of the future uh, gave way to this sort of more pessimistic, sort of disastrous vision of the future. And I think the more time we spend imagining the collapse of our civilization, the more inevitable it becomes. And I think the more time we spend imagining the full potential of our civilization, the more possible it becomes and so in this in this way i think that the imagination and storytelling and art and envisioning is actually a very important and practical enterprise to engage in and i think if we imagine a better future it's more likely we can achieve it and i think if we imagine a terrible future uh, I think it's it's also more likely that we'll achieve that. And I think that there are those powerful people who think that it's it will be easier to profit from a terrible future. And mm -hmm. so they uh, exercise what power, effort, and resources they can into ensuring it so that they might profit from it. Yeah, it's better to operate in darkness in the light for like a weird kind of paradox. Like, you know what I mean? Like, be evil up front rather than be evil up in the shadows. It's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so I I uh, I think art and and culture and storytelling are powerful, not only powerful tools, but powerful engines of societal transformation and i think if people see the possibilities of a better future not only will they be more inclined to work towards it but they'll be more inclined to demand it what about the value of a cautionary tale though is there any value for those certainly there are values in cautionary tales but i think they need to be they need to be framed as such i think they they need to be framed as sort of a cautionary lesson rather than an inevitability and i think i think there was a there, there was a tipping point where these cautionary tales uh started to be presented or 
understood as inevitabilities rather than uh, things to be avoided. And it's at that tipping point where I think, you know, things begin to fall apart and uh, people lose hope in that, in that better tomorrow. And uh, so I, I, I think in order to swing the pendulum back the other way, it's sort of, it's sort of incumbent on artists and writers and sort of culture makers to, uh, to push that pendulum a little bit by presenting that, that, that better world by imagining it so that we can achieve it and put, putting it back in the, in the, in the consciousness of, of society. Does that pendulum swing back and like you just use like better world. Hope is a powerful word. Like you can't just casually drop hope into a conversation. It's like a grenade. So as you as a poet, you as a writer, does that pendulum swing back? Does that also include taking back certain words or kind of reframing certain words? Like, I mean, obviously I'm a writer, I'm a poet. Uh, I think words are powerful and I think words carry meaning. I think, uh, I think people who can't afford permanent housing, I think people who can't afford an education without going into lifelong debt, mm-hmm. I think people who cannot count on any kind of job security are less likely to have hope for the future which is why the powers that be have over the last 50 years exercised so much effort into reducing job security making education less affordable, making housing less affordable. It's, it's, it, it, it's literally to winnow away people's hope for the future, to make them more compliant, to make, them, to make the workforce less likely to, to rise up. You can't, you can't rise up if you're afraid you're not going to eat tomorrow. You can't rise up if you're afraid you're going to be out on the street without a roof over your head. And so if education comes with the cost of sort of being saddled with lifelong debt, the debt trap, if housing is precarious, if work and, and sort of a livelihood is precarious, then the uh, sort of the rich, powerful people have a greater uh, control over the working class and there's less hope hand in hand. The, uh, the rise of sort of uh, pessimism, dystopia, post-apocalyptic imaginings has come along with this sort of reduced job security, reduced housing security, reduced food security, uh, less access to higher education. So if we can imagine a society where housing is affordable and secure, where uh, a livelihood is affordable and secure uh, and education is accessible without falling into the lifelong debt trap, then we can foresee and achieve a sort of a more equitable, a more prosperous future. 
for everyone in society, which is why I think we're starting to see a push towards things like universal basic income. Mm -hmm. If there's a if there's a floor of prosperity that that we will not let the majority of people fall below, then we can push off from that floor and begin to climb up. And the uh, the resistance to providing that stability is mainly coming from those who profit from instability. And the more artists and storytellers and culture makers can show people what a better future society might look like, then the more people will demand it and the more effort and energy and resources will be marshaled into trying to achieve it. Or at least this is what I believe. It's the classic analogy of like you're hungry for something and you open the fridge and you look at it, all the stuff that you have, uh, but you don't know what it is that you're hungry for. And so you're talking about developing an appetite for hope. Absolutely. That's 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 the analogy works just fine. You know, mm-hmm. so th- that analogy works just fine. There's a whole section in your latest book, Shared Universe, and we'll get more into Shared Universe, but there's one section I want to focus on right now, which is More Poems of Prophecy and Clairvoyance. That's the name of the section, More Poems of Prophecy and Clairvoyance. So with what you're saying just now, do you find it easier to look ahead with hope towards the future, even if current circumstances don't suggest that we'll be okay? I think over the past several years, it's been very difficult. (laughs) <laughs> to look forward to the future <laughs> with hope. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's when I, that's what I mean when I say I'm nostalgic for the futurism of 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 hope. I'm nostalgic for that space age optimism, and I I would like us as as a culture to get back to that kind of hopeful, optimistic forward-looking kind of attitude as a people. And I, 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 I don't think that, it, by and large, we have it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the... I think sort of the, the Trump administration and sort of uh, the, the, the creeping crypto-fascism, which isn't so cryptic anymore is all designed to annihilate hope. It's all designed to make people feel powerless. It's all designed to make people feel that there is no truth, that there is n- there's there's no surface against which they can they can push to uh, sort of right the ship. And and I think people who profit off like I've said people who profit off of of chaos and people who profit off of uh, hopelessness uh, like it that way. And I think there's a lot of people who amass uh, a good amount of money and power by keeping things that way. And uh, we need to use our sort of our, our, our political democracy in order to achieve some kind of uh, economic democracy. And from that, we can begin to argue for a better future, a more equitable future, a more sustainable future, a more secure future for everyone. And, uh, and so storytelling and culture making have a lot to 
I have a lot of work to do towards convincing people that these things are possible and worth fighting for. And then that will translate into sort of political will. And then that will, political will will translate into political action and political action may ultimately achieve some results. So I, th- I think it starts with imagination. If you don't imagine that a better future is possible, you won't even, you won't even try for it. Mm-hmm. So um, first it must be imagined. Then it must be argued. Then it must be believed. Then it must be demanded. Then it must be worked for. Then it must be achieved. Yeah, it's like planning a trip to New York City. Like you start looking at all the different sites and things you can go to, pizzerias, visit the Statue of Liberty, go do all. Like you think about the trip that you want to have, but nobody ever actually thinks about the flight. Nobody envisions the flight or anything like that, but it's the flight that gets you to New York City so you can do all these things. And that's what you're talking about is just starting with that bit of imagination, and that spark. You're like, wouldn't it be fun to go visit New York City? Well, and not only that, but somebody had to imagine New York City. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to imagine that a city could be here. Somebody had to imagine a plan for that city. Somebody had to imagine uh, the buildings that were built there. Someone had to imagine uh, the way life would unfold there. And people believed that a city could be there. People believed that buildings could be built, that streets could be laid out. And so those things were done. And now people can live in that city. The future is an unbuilt city. The future is an unbuilt city that can be planned, that can be imagined and planned and built and inhabited. And we can decide collectively to imagine a wasteland where few people prosper and the rest of us are stuck in cycles of insecurity. Mad Max. And, or we can imagine a future where the majority of people prosper and share in that prosperity and have access to prosperity and livelihood and education and all those things. And we can build that future. But before it can be planned, it has to be imagined. And then it has to be argued for. And then that argument has to win. (laughs) And so it's a process. Mm -hmm. It's a process. In terms of that process, though, your latest book, as I said, is Shared Universe. And I'm curious why a shared universe rather than a parallel universe, right? Because your introduction alluded to that, that there might be a parallel universe. So why a shared universe rather than a parallel parallel universe? Uh, well, I think, I, think the, I think the book sort of alludes to, to, to both concepts of a shared universe and, a, and parallel universes which has more to do with sort of how the book is, 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 is assembled and curated. Uh, this book is, is a, a selection of, of my poems from the last 25 years uh, and from various other, other books and publications that I've done over that time. So sort of bringing, bringing uh, poems together from like sort of all my previously published books and putting them in, in sort of one context is, is kind of like uh, the shared universe uh, device that we see in sort of modern day uh, movie making where, you know, you have a Captain America film, you have an Iron Man film, you have a Thor film. And then suddenly, you know, we, uh, we understand that all these films are taking place in a shared universe and you can have 
an Avengers film. Mm -hmm. And so for, for me, I sort of, I thought it was sort of a whimsical idea to understand a selected poetry book as that, as that kind of Avengers assemble moment where, mm -hmm. you know, poems, poems from all these other books are brought together into one book to sort of go on an adventure together. And um, so in, in, in that way, the title of the book is quite whimsical in that it's sort of referring to the, this sort of pop culture phenomenon of sort of crossover, crossover storytelling in, in cinema and, and novels and comic books and things like that. Um, and the idea of uh, sort of parallel universes is, comes into the way that I curated the book, which is um, instead of uh, instead of sort of organizing the book chronologically, here's poems from my first book, here's poems from my second book, and so on. I I organized them sort of thematically and aesthetically in terms of how these books might have manifested themselves in parallel universes instead of the the books that I published over the last sort of 25 years in the way that we did, I, uh, I like to imagine that I might have published them in slightly different formats or in different organizations, different combinations. And, uh, and it's those imaginary books that I'm selecting from and organizing the selected volume according to. And, and now that I've pulled them from their various sort of parallel universes and now they share a universe in this volume. And, uh, and I think we're just sort of, we're just sort of getting to that actually in sort of like the Marvel films, which seem to be ramping up towards a more sort of multiverse kind of Doctor format. Strange, yeah. So, you know, and I'm not, I'm not above saying that, uh, uh, that I, I might be inspired to sort of, organize uh my poetry you know somewhat inspired by uh you know comic books and superhero films and things like that i don't really believe in high and low culture there's this culture and whatever whatever is effective is effective um and whatever sparks people's imaginations is what sparks people's imaginations i understand that i work in an art form that has less broad popular appeal than say a superhero film but i can certainly borrow from that genre what i think is interesting and use it as a framework for you know the work that i'm doing and um and that's what i've done with this book was there any surprises as you kind of look back and uh you were kind of creating curating this poetry and putting it together did certain poems take on more meaning with the passage of time? I don't know that they took on more meaning with the passage of time, but they might have taken on more meaning meaning with the way that I grouped them. Because I wasn't grouping them chronologically, I could take a 20-year-old poem and put it next to a 15-year-old poem, a 10-year-old poem, and a poem I just wrote and kind of just by placing them next to each other, make them sort of interact and uh, and sort of call to one another or reference one another in in different ways. And I think that may have enhanced the meaning of some of the poems just by juxtaposing them differently than uh, a, 
a chronological arrangement would have allowed. By placing them together more thematically and aesthetically, I think the poems sort of worked, they worked together better. And then because of the, the, new, the new context they're given, they, it might, they might seemingly have, have more to say or say it a bit more emphatically. Yeah, so then would you consider this to be a commentary on time? Also, like you said, like uh, you're a science fiction guy and you're putting you're juxtaposing all these different old poems, new poems. Is it a commentary on time as well? Because you got to have a uh, have a strange relationship to time knowing that you're a science fiction guy. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure that I thought of it in that way, Sammy. Certainly the sort of the uh, imagining how these books might have unfolded in uh, in other universes. There's an element of time there that maybe time has unfolded differently in these other universes, but I don't think I've had like a like a dedicated sort of, mm-hmm. you know, back to the future slingshot around the sun kind of uh, <laughs> uh, idea of sort of playing with time uh, in this book. Although certainly, you know, taking poems out of chronological order and rearranging them, I'm, I'm certainly doing something with time and i guess in a way imagining me at different points in my life uh when i would have written these poems and making and and putting the various versions of myself side by side with one another through these poems is sort of an interesting exercise uh but i'm not sure that i was uh i'm not sure if that was my main conscious objective uh, in the rearrangement of these poems, it was it was certainly more thematic and uh, aesthetic, and it, and if there was some kind of chronological game happening at the same time, it was a byproduct of the thematic and, and aesthetic arrangement. What about you as a creator? Like you create more than poetry; you do paintings, uh, images, all kinds of different things. Uh, you make music. Uh, so you're a multimedia artist. Like, do you have like an adverse relationship with time, or do you? Because some people always feel like they're running out of time, or they don't have enough time to do this, or to do that. They have kind of a. A lot of creators have a very negative relationship with time. They always feel like it's a deadline or pressures on them or whatever. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I do. I have. I mean, I have a lot of anxieties and 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 worries and and sort of preoccupations in my life. But aging uh, so far, knock on wood, hasn't been one of them. Mm-hmm. I don't feel sort of under the gun to produce. And I'm not, and I'm paintings, poems, music, whatever. Um, I just sort of do things as, as sort of the, the moment sort of dictates. And I'm not sure I'd be able to really work any other way so I, I feel kind of thankful for that because I do know people who sort of feel compelled uh, in a race against time to get their work finished. That's what I mean. Yeah, and I'm, I, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure I feel that pressure. I actually, I finished the, the last thing I needed to finish for Shared Universe at sort of uh, the end of February, beginning of March this year, 2020. And I have, actually haven't written any poetry since then. And for me, this sort of time away from writing poetry is actually fruitful. It's like um, in agriculture, sometimes you have to let 
the field lie fallow for a year mm -hmm. so that the soil the soil can regenerate and become fertile again uh, and if you don't if you don't lie fallow uh, the soil you can wear out the soil and the soil won't be as fertile so I've, I've taken most of a year away from writing at all and uh, and, I, and I, I feel no pressure uh, because of that, I actually feel like you know this is a, a a good time for me to just sort of sit and reflect, and maybe put a little bit of distance between me and this book because I feel like this book sort of puts a cap on twenty five years of writing for me. So whatever I do next can be a fresh start. Um, I've got sort of nothing left laying around. Like anything that I sort of wanted out there is now out there. And um, so I don't I don't actually have a, a like a folder on my computer that's like, you know, poems I haven't dealt with or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So when I do get back to writing, it'll be completely fresh and I can sort of start over. And I don't know what that's going to be. And uh, I, I think if I didn't take some time away from writing, I would just sort of instinctively just sort of keep writing in the same way, keep writing the same thing. And uh, so I, I put this book out, 25 years of writing, Shared Universe, New and Selected Poems, 1995 to 2020. And, and now I'm sort of, I've been taking a break from writing. Yeah. And it, so I, I don't feel that pressure to produce all the time. And, you know, and I've, I've only made like four paintings this year. And um, I haven't written any music since before the summer. So I'm just sort of, I feel like I'm only just sort of taking some time to re just reflect on my sort of creative patterns and, you know, the things that inspire me and what I've done. And I feel like whenever I get back to it, it'll be, uh, it'll be fresh. And, um, and I don't like to put that kind of pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a lot of like very popular comedians like Chris Rock, uh, Louis C.K., Jerry Seinfeld, a number of those bigger ones like that, where like they'll tour, do a whole bunch of shows, basically develop an hour of stand up, then do an HBO special or Netflix special and kind of retire all that material. And then they have to start all over again. So it's like uh, rather than keep doing the same jokes or the same kind of themes or whatever, they kind of just put everything aside take a break and then go back out and start trying to figure out what's funny about where we at, where they're at and kind of start developing a new hour. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like, like George Carlin might've been like one of the pioneers of sort of that, that mm. methodology. Yeah. And, um, and, and now it seems to be the way that a lot of, a, a lot of the sort of the very best comics work and that sort of comedians that sort of have the same act, year after year after year after year and now seen more as uh like hacks mm -hmm. and um and it used to be before the internet and before uh you know more frequent media appearances uh someone could could develop a set and sort of tour around the u.s or the world for years on the same material and in each each place that you visited, it would be new because nobody there had seen it before. But now, as soon, yeah, new to them, is because now as soon as you're on the internet, uh, everyone can see it at the same time, mm -hmm. and and you'll need something new the next time people see you. 
And uh, so I think some of the what you're talking about is sort of driven by the need to be creative. And I think some of what you're talking about is like a necessity of, of, of media and right. media saturation. Mm hmm. And it's opportunity to like it's a challenge too, right? Like if you've successfully created uh, one hour stand up, that's a great achievement. Now you want to see if you can do it again, and it's the same thing for you. Like twenty five years of writing poetry is a great achievement, and it makes sense to put a, a best of collection, like a shared universe, uh, celebrating your work. But now it's like, can you do it again, right? That's what you want to see. Like you've done the mountain, you've done one mountain once. Can you do another mountain again? Yeah, and I have no idea what I'll do next. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still just sort of reflecting. And um, I'll, you know, when, I, as the expression goes, when the spirit moves me, mm -hmm. I'll, you know, I'll start whatever it is that I'm going to do next with, write, with writing. And uh, I've had some thoughts about sort of various things I can start doing, but... Um, I, I don't think I've actually convinced myself that uh, just to, to get started. And I, I don't know what the sort of what the inciting moment will be when I get to, back to writing again. Maybe it'll be like just, you know, the end of February, beginning of March. And uh, once, once maybe, you know, just once a calendar year has gone by, that'll seem like enough. I, I can't say, you know, we'll find out in two months. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And so with the uncertainty of, uh, of our lives right now during the pandemic, I want to switch this to readers now. You're the poet who does the writing, but for people who read poetry and going through this pandemic, are dark times like this the bat signal to read more poetry? I, I mean, I, there's, I think there's two, there's two reasons people turn to poetry for the most part, aside from just, you know, from people who just enjoy poetry and it's part of their regular reading habit. People seem to turn to poetry in times of celebration, mm -hmm. wedding, weddings, births, things like that. And people seem to turn to poetry in times of despair, funerals, uh, times of great personal strife. And, um, these seem to be to be the times that people turn to poetry. So if there's great societal strife, great societal turmoil, um, it's it's it seems natural to me that that more people will turn to poetry in whatever form it is that they find it or enjoy it um, or find meaning or, or solace in it or even a reflection of whatever darkness they're feeling. Um, and if at you know if there's a light at the end of the tunnel and a change in the political winds brings about a more optimistic view of the world then i think people will also uh turn to poetry to sort of resonate with that feeling a bit more powerfully i think i think i think literature and poetry and storytelling and and the experience of art in many ways exists uh to inspire us but also as a kind of uh resonance chamber for us to sort of be more attuned and more alive to our own sort of sensations of the world and um we turn to poetry to give voice to the things that we're feeling and don't have words for. And uh, certainly 
the world provides ample opportunity for us to feel things that we have trouble putting into words. And I think that's why poetry exists for many people. Yeah, like weddings is a good example of what you just said, where like you feel all these emotions and you are looking forward to this great event and to your life with your wife and all these kind of things. And it can be hard to put all of that into some sort of like context. Like I love you or thank you for being my life or whatever. These kind of sentiments that we usually express, they feel a little short. They feel they come up a little empty when you want to express something big and dramatic. Well, even even at the most sort of superficial end of this equation is the greeting card. Mm-hmm. When there's something you want to express to somebody, whether it's I love you or happy birthday or I'm sorry about your loss or get well soon and you don't necessarily feel like you have the words for it, you can go to the drugstore and you can mm-hmm. buy a, a, a card that will express it for you. And it's often written in, in a little verse that, uh, that makes the expression of that idea, that thought or that wish a little bit more memorable, a little bit more beautiful. And you can give that to somebody. And I think, I, I, I think that the impetus of buying a greeting card is sort of just the tip of the iceberg of, you know, what engagement with poetry and literature and the arts uh, can do for us in terms of giving voice to those things that we're having trouble making sense of in, in the world or in ourselves. And, um, when we read poetry and novels and plays and experience plays on the stage and watch films and listen to song, uh, all of these things are expressions that we can then hold up to our own experience of the world and, uh, and, and, and our experience of our own inner lives and see where the pieces match up and go, I, that's how I feel. Or that's an interesting idea I'd like to explore a little bit more. So, I mean, the arts are a way for us to connect with ourselves, connect with the world, connect with other people, and sort of broaden our minds. And um, and they function in a lot of different ways, but I think it all it all it all comes down to that sort of someone buying a greeting card because they're 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 looking for the right way to express something that's important to them Mm -hmm. and it it, it can start in a moment like that but if you take that moment of looking for the right way to express something important that's the arts in general and yeah. So I, I think that I think poetry sort of fulfills that niche in a way that's a, in a very specific thing that poetry does. Mm-hmm. And dance does it in another way. And which is why we have so many different art forms, because there are so many different ways to express these things that are important or that are resonant or that are enlightening or enlivening and enriching uh, in some way that help us communicate with others, that help us understand ourselves, that help us make sense of the world. And so I think there's always going to be a reason people will turn to poetry, whether it's joy, tragedy, confusion, something in the middle. 
That's an inspiring takeaway. We can end it there. Where can people find you online to hear about your inner expressions, whether that be about future, uh, hope, optimism, sci-fi, movies, poetry? Where can people find you online? If people go to paulvermeersh.ca, uh, they can find out more about my books, my artwork, my music, uh, and uh, they can find links to my social media platforms there as well. That's paulvermeersh.ca. And the new book is Shared Universe, New and Selected Poems. 1995 to 2020. Uh, congratulations. It's appearing on a few uh, best books of 2020 lists. That's got to be really exciting. High five for that. Thanks, Sammy. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been, um, despite all the difficulties and uh, uh, not being able to tour the book live and in person and engaging with audiences uh, the way that I would like to, it's been a really interesting year and it's been a, uh, it's been a fun year trying to promote this book. And, um, and, and, I'm I'm glad that it's uh, getting into the hands of readers and people really seem to be enjoying it. So th- uh, that that is uh, that is fun and that's a rewarding uh, experience, uh, despite all the all the troubles that we've experienced this year as well. Okay, great. Uh, we started off with Tenant. <laughs> we covered parallel universes. We covered a shared universe. We covered Marvel movies. We covered prophecy, clairvoyance. And the futurism of Walt Disney. I think we did quite a bit of uh, work today. I think we did a good job. It's been fun, Sammy. I want to thank you for having me on uh, my summer lair again. It's been a, a real treat. Yo, that was poet and writer Paul Vermeesh talking about his poetry collection, Shared Universe, New and Selected Poems, 1995 to 2020. This is my summer layer, and I am Sammy Yunan. I, I gotta make some tea and like sort out Paul's thinking on creating a positive public imagination. Personally, <laughs> I'm team dystopia. I adore ruckus and delight in darkness in my science fiction movies and novels and comic books. But, this is a big old but, but I do wonder if he's right. That is, if we showed the public more light, would that make a difference? How do we dream out loud? And I'm certainly not talking about social media. When Paul was talking about positive public imagination, I kept thinking about Mercy Street by Peter Gabriel. A haunting, unsettled song, much like his other hit, Here Comes the Flood. Mercy Street is one of his best. The song opens with these lyrics. Looking down on empty streets, all she can see are the dreams all made solid, are the dreams made real. All of the buildings, all of the cars were once just a dream in somebody's head. Mercy Street. If you don't know the song, ask YouTube. Though before you do that, can I ask you a question? Who today is writing or making movies that you think echoes what Paul is saying? Who are some creators that look towards the future and imagine a better, brighter world? Who are the new Walt Disney's or bold Gene Roddenberry's? Let me know. I'm at my pal Sammy for all three. My pal Sammy for Twitter, IG, and Facebook. If you want to share your public imagination with me, I'm at my pal Sammy. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me in a Netflix world. Poetry, yo.